Talk Show. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 19th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Discussing the first portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we had seen Paul's own assertions that the Corinthian Greeks to whom he had written this epistle were indeed descended from the Israelites of the Exodus. We discussed corroborating historical evidence which proves that Paul's words are literally factual. For that reason, Paul had admonished the Corinthians not to commit the sin of fornication or race mixing as their fathers had done, and for which many of them were destroyed. This was among other acts of disobedience which Paul had mentioned from Scripture as an illustration for their admonishment. From fornication, Paul then turned to admonishing the Corinthians concerning idolatry. There, in verse 20, which is where we left off last week, he made a very revealing statement, one which is often glossed over by churchmen who are ignorant of its significance, where Paul said, Behold, Israel according to the flesh. And then, after a few rhetorical questions concerning the efficacy of idols, he finished his reference by stating that whatever the nation sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. It is absolutely evident that Paul's intentions with those words was to identify the nations of the Greco-Roman oikumene as Israel according to the flesh, or, as the Christian New Testament has it, Israel down through the flesh. There are three major aspects of Old Testament scripture both in its history and in its prophecy, which Paul of Tarsus had indubitably held in mind as he wrote his epistles to the Christian assemblies of Europe and Anatolia. First, that the ancient children of Israel were practitioners of pagan idolatry and not of the Hebrew law. Therefore, they do not appear as Hebrews in their dispersions, but as pagans. Second, that the ancient children of Israel were all taken off from Palestine and the ancient kingdom of Yahweh as a result of that idolatry. And third, that there were promises of God which were made to the patriarchs concerning the children of Israel, which transcended their adherence to or their apostasy from the Old Covenant. And among those promises were the promises that they would multiply into an innumerable people and become many nations. Paul discussed these things at length in places such as 
Romans chapter 4, and Galatians chapters 3 and 4. Paul was bringing the gospel of reconciliation to those nations, which were all of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that is the full biblical commission. Many of those pagan nations of Europe were indeed of the children of Israel, and Paul asserts as much here. Then he explicitly connects the Corinthian Greeks to the Old Testament scriptures. History supports his connection, and indeed, history supports all of the other aspects of his assertions. For this reason, Paul explained to Herod in Acts chapter 26 that he labored for the hope of the promise made to the 12 tribes for which he was accused by the Jews. By making such a statement, Paul also shows that the Jews are not the 12 tribes and that the 12 tribes are not the Jews. While we discuss the first portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we had a digression concerning strange gods and how in the Old Testament there were people who were considered to be the children of those gods. There are some who would respond that children only means followers. And that is an outright deception, regardless of how sinful the children of Israel became, and regardless of the pagan idolatry which the children of Israel engaged in. They remained the children of Yahweh, and for that reason, they were called to obedience in Christ. As the scripture says in Amos, chapter 3, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Can two walk together, except they be agreed? The children of strange gods never had an opportunity to somehow become the children of Yahweh by behavior or according to who they follow. The children of Israel were never considered the children of strange gods, and even in their complete apostasy, they remained the children of Yahweh being punished for their sins. You couldn't unmake them, the children of Yahweh, if you wanted to. Likewise, we read in Jeremiah chapter 46, Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven thee but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. Likewise, we read in Hosea, Then said God, Call his name Lo and me, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number 
of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, meaning the Israelites, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, the same Israelites, ye are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel, meaning God sows. Israel is the race of God, his servant race. He formed and created the children of Israel. He sowed them. Here, Hosea describes a time when Israel would be alienated and a time when Israel would be reconciled. In the intervening period, they would multiply according to the original promise to Abraham that they would be as the sand of the sea. The Apostle Peter cited this very passage in reference to the Christians of Anatolia as a holy nation and as a chosen race because those Christians were also of the children of Israel. The Christian gospel is the announcement to the nations of pagan Israel to depart from sin and to return to Yahweh in Christ. That is Paul's gospel of reconciliation, the gospel for compliance of the nations, which he had discussed in Romans chapter 15, which was to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, as he had professed in verse 8 of that chapter. This is why the Apostle John, in chapter 11 of his gospel, said of the speech of Caiaphas that he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he should gather together the children in one, the children of God that were scattered abroad. Christ came for the children of Israel among the Judeans, and also for the children of Israel, of the nations of the dispersions of Israel, so that, as it says in Hosea, the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head which is Christ. They were children of God because they were Israelites, regardless of their religion and because of their lack of true religion. They required that salvation, which is found in Christ. But Christ did not come for the children of devils. 
He had told the Judeans who rejected him, who Paul described as Edomites in Romans chapter 9. Paul attributes that as the reason why they did not accept Christ, because they were Edomites. Christ told them that they were not his sheep, and for that reason they did not believe him, nor were they expected to believe him. Christ called these false Judeans the synagogue of Satan twice in his revelation. Whenever we examine the identity of the devils, we find bastards, Edomites, and Canaanites, and others, rather than Israelites. If race did not matter, and if only religion mattered, there would have been commands to Joshua to convert rather than to exterminate the bastards. If race did not matter, if only religion mattered, then Paul would not have told Corinthian men and women to remain married to their unbelieving spouses, while at the same time admonishing them to refrain from fornication the pursuit of strange flesh, and using the example of Israelites, joined to the daughters of Moab in his admonishment. Christ did not tell the Jews, you are not my sheep because you do not believe me, which is a religious statement. Rather, Christ told the Jews, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep, which is a racial statement. Spreading the gospel, it is evident in Paul's epistles that race did matter and religion did not. So long as the lost sheep of the house of Israel were turned to obedience in Christ. That is why Paul told the Corinthians not to commit fornication while also telling them to stay with their unbelieving spouses. In truth, race transcends the religious issue, and the religious issue is only a valid issue within the race of Israel, because it does not matter what the devils on the outside may believe. In fact, the Apostle James said in his epistle, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So the devils can believe in God, but they are still devils. They can't change the children of God because they believe in God. They believe in God, and they are still devils. In conclusion, we see that the children of God are the children of God regardless of their religion or their behavior, and that devils are devils regardless of what they believe. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, which contains the very passage Paul had cited in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, we read of the children of Israel, but, and we'll read from verse 15, but Jeshurun, now Jeshurun is a symbolic name for Israel, and it means upright one. And here, 
even though this passage is describing Israel as going off into sin, Israel is still identified by a name which means upright one. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxing fat. Thou art grown sick. Thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils and not to God. To gods whom they knew not, to new gods, they came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. The word for gods in verse 16 is only implied. And in both the King James Version and in Branton Septuagint, the word gods was added, although it does not appear in either the Hebrew or the Greek of Deuteronomy 32.16. In the original languages in verse 16, of course, the word gods does appear in the other verses. In the original languages in verse 16, these words may have instead been interpreted as relating to the strangers themselves rather than to their strange gods. The children of Israel were adopting the practices of aliens Practices which, upon investigation, go far beyond merely sacrificing to idols. And those things, described as abominations, had provoked Yahweh to jealousy. In the Hebrew language, the word for devils, which we find in Deuteronomy 32.17, they sacrifice to devils and not to God, is shed. Strong's number... 7,700, probably because it refers to a spirit being, probably the word which the English word shadow is ultimately derived from, and the word shade, that your spirit is a shade or a shadow of your physical being. The word shed according to James Strong, is a noun, which means demon. In the corresponding Greek of the Septuagint, the word shed was translated as dahimonian, or demon. Dahimonian is a variation of the word which gives us demon, daimon. Daimon, or demon, refers to an inferior divine being, a demon, according to Liddell and Scott. Joseph Thayer, in his lexicon, defines it to mean a god, a goddess, an inferior deity. Now, there's no, there's no real conflict in the, uh, the definitions. It's all a matter of perspective. From a Christian viewpoint, these gods and goddesses are demons. From a pagan viewpoint, 
these demons are gods and goddesses. Real simple. No conflict. There is no doubt from Greek writers throughout the centuries that a demon, a dahimon, or a daimonian, was a spirit being, and that those spirit beings were frequently worshipped as gods. Now, sometimes a demon was an idea personified and imagined to be a spirit being. That's another story. It is these same demons of the pagan religions to which Paul refers here. But calling them demons, he refers not merely to the dumb idols created by the hands of men, but to actual spirit beings. The dumb idols were originally created by men as representations of those demons. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul makes a rather enigmatic remark, and he tells his readers, as the Christogenian New Testament translates it, to let no one find you unworthy of reward, being willing with humiliation, even in the worship of the messengers or angels. The King James Version has the same passage to say, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. It's close. The meaning of this statement is elucidated in part with an understanding of the passage we have read from Deuteronomy chapter 32. However, in contemporary Judean literature, we may find further elucidation, I mean contemporary to Paul, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in a work known as Songs of the Sage, a part of the collection known as Hymns from Qumran, the portion of the fragment designated 4Q510, which we are about to read, is a part of what is also called the Qumran Songs Against Demons. From a fragment, from fragment 1 of the scroll designated 4Q510, which is also in part duplicated in fragments from 4Q511. From the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition by Martinez and Tinkalar, and I quote, this is, song, this is from the Qumran Songs Against Demons. Blessings to the King of Glory. Words of thanksgiving in songs of splendor to the God of knowledge, the glory of the powerful ones, the God of gods, Lord of all the holy ones. His realm is above the powerful mighty, and before the might of his power, all are terrified and scatter. They flee before the radiance of his glorious, majestic stronghold. A praise of Yahweh. And I, a sage, declare the splendor of his radiance in order to frighten and terrify all the spirits of the ravaging angels and the bastard spirits, demons, lilith, owls, and jackals, and those who strike unexpectedly to lead astray the spirit of knowledge to make their hearts forlorn. And you have been placed in the era of the rule of wickedness and in the periods 
of humiliation of the sons of light and the guilty periods of those defiled by iniquities, not for an everlasting destruction, but rather for the era of the humiliation of sin. And this is very much like Romans chapters 6 and 7. Rejoice, righteous ones, in the wonderful God. Paul of Tarsus, in many places in his epistle, in his epistles, I'm sorry, had described these same conditions and made these same professions which the writer of this Qumran material had made. But Paul's descriptions were within a Christian context, while the Qumran sect did not yet know of Christ. They didn't reject Christ either. They were oblivious. They were ignorant of Christ which indicates to me that most of their documents were written before the ministry of Christ, and possibly all of them. In turn, Songs of the Sage is only echoing many of the far earlier sentiments expressed in the Enoch literature, much of which was also preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Representative of the Enoch literature in this regard and relating to the events recorded in Genesis chapter 6 is 4Q202 or 4Q Enoch B Aramaic. That's the designated name of the scroll. Column 2, a text which corresponds to Charles's translation of one Enoch in chapters parts of chapters 5 through 8. And we find, and I quote, it happened that when in those days the sons of men increased, pretty and attractive daughters were born to them. The watchers, sons of the sky, saw them and lusted for them and said to each other, let's go and choose out women from among the daughters of men and sire for ourselves sons. There are reconstructions in this translation which are corroborated from other scrolls. The offspring which resulted from these mixed unions are later called bastards. For instance, in 4Q204, another piece of Enoch literature, we see issued the prophetic command to exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers. That word watchers is used of certain angels, and that is evident in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, several times, where it is without doubt used of angels. The word also appears in a similar context in the Greek poet Hesiod, one of the famous probably the second most famous, the second most renowned after Homer of the Greek epic poets. In his poem, Works and Days, lines 252 through 255, where he said, For upon the bounteous earth, Zeus, it's the pagan perspective. Zeus has three times 10,000 spirits, watchers of mortal men, and these keep watch on judgments and deeds of wrong. 
as they roam, clothed in mist, all over the earth. In Sumerian literature, from inscriptions which predate the patriarch Abraham by at least 500 years, we see in the Epic of Gilgamesh that a goddess was said to have descended from heaven and created the giant known as Enkidu. Gilgamesh himself was a giant who was said to have descended from the gods and from man. And he ruled as a king over the ancient city of Erech. After his death, Gilgamesh was said to have become the I'm sorry, become the ruler over the underworld, the abode of the dead. The name of Gilgamesh even appears at least twice in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Enoch literature known as the Book of Giants, 4Q530 and 4Q531, where he is mentioned with the Nephilim and the giants, or Rephaim, who are called the assembly of his friends. Therefore, Gilgamesh is an exemplary model of these scriptures concerning devils. He also would have qualified as one of those new gods that newly came up, whom your fathers feared not, mentioned in Deuteronomy 32.17. Bear in mind that according to Scripture, Abraham's Hebrew fathers were also pagans. Joshua chapter 24. In the Old Testament, Goliath and his brethren were also said to be the sons of Rapha, the Hebrew word for giant, which in the plural gives us the word Rephaim. Genesis chapter 15. The Greeks had many similar myths, similar to Gilgamesh, where both men and tribes were said to be descended from the unions of the various so-called gods with earthly women. Paul called these myths vain genealogies. Paul didn't say genealogies were vain. Paul referred to vain genealogies. There's a difference. Ostensibly, the Israelites, having turned to paganism, had carried with them in their dispersions the myths of the non-Adamic people that they learned their paganism from. And ostensibly, they elaborated on those myths in their travels. These stories are told from one perspective in the biblical literature and from the opposite perspective in the pagan literature. Just as we should expect to find it if the biblical accounts are true. And therefore, the biblical accounts are proven to be true. 
because the secular literature of the pagans or the Israelites that later became pagans have the exact opposite perspective on these gods, these devils that the Bible has. The Kenites, the Rephaim, and the other children of the Watchers, the fallen angels, survived the flood of Noah apart from the ark, which is evident with their mention in Genesis chapter 15 and elsewhere in Scripture. These bastards and their demon spirits are credited with the deception of men in the Enoch literature, in the words of the sage of Qumran. And, in the words of Paul of Tarsus, they are the source of the pagan idols and all of the associated abominations. The children of strange gods are their children, and there's no switching sides. Those of the non-Adamic races, which are not listed in Genesis chapter 10, and they are the walking, talking, breathing devils, which we see mentioned so often, both in the Old and New Testaments. As the Apostle John had warned in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, 1 John 4.1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world, spirits gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit, every person, that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit, every person, that confesses not, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. John was not talking about disembodied spirits, but about embodied ones. In John's day, the bastard spirits denied Christ and Christianity. Today, they have infiltrated it instead, seeking to destroy it from within, as Paul, as Jude, as Peter had all warned would happen. With this, we shall continue where we left off in the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. Now I do not wish for you to be partners with demons, the things the nations sacrifice. They sacrifice to demons and not to God. Now I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the prince and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the prince and of the table of demons. In other words, Christians shouldn't eat with Jews 
or Arabs or Negroes? Or do we provoke the prince to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? The gods of the non-Israelite nations, particularly in Scripture because they are the ones that are around, particularly the gods of the Canaanites, were worshipped by the children of Israel, and therefore this continued when the children of Israel were taken away from Palestine. They were pagans. Don't look for Jews in the ancient dispersions of the Israelites. That's the mistake that all the clowns make that don't know their Bible. Look for pagans in the ancient dispersion of Israelites. This is evident in many places in Scripture, in addition to the passage from Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we have already cited. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 13, from verse 10, we read, This evil people, which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart, and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girl, which is good for nothing. At least many of the Greek idols known to us from their own writings were linked directly to Palestine or to the idols of Palestine. Athena is a famous example. Athena is certainly of the same sex characteristics, attributes as the Phoenician or Canaanite goddess Anath. And when you understand that Phoenician was written forwards or backwards, left to right or right to left, it's easy to see how Anath can become Athena. Athena is Anath backwards. Athena, Astarte, Heracles, Perseus, Andromeda, Dionysius, the literal fulfillment of the words of the prophets of Israel in this regard are easily made manifest in history and scripture in the knowledge of the Israelites of the dispersions. Furthermore, Israel being the wife of Yahweh as a nation, the allegorical wife of God, the word of Yahweh said in Hosea chapter 2, and she, meaning dispersed Israel, cast out Israel before the reconciliation. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it is better with me than now. The Israelites, in their dispersions, never did find any truth in the idols that they had taken to worship, but they did return to Yahweh in Christ, thereby fulfilling the words of Hosea. Continuing in idolatry, they continue to provoke Yahweh their God to jealousy, and invite his wrath. From Exodus chapter 20, 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, Yahweh thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. A correlation of the prophecy of the revelation with the history of Europe in the Christian era can demonstrate that Revelation chapter 9 is indeed a prophecy of judgment against the children of Israel, which was fulfilled when from out of the pits of hell the, the Islamic hordes of Arab bastards had invaded and destroyed a large part of Christendom. Yahweh used the Arabs as a scourge to punish his people Israel, as they once again are being used today. In the conclusion of the Islamic plague of the Middle Ages, the words of Christ say, and the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and the idols of gold, and silver, and brass, and of stone, and of wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their sabbaths. Once again we see idolatry connected to the worship of devils, along with other abominable practices, such as fornication, which always accompanied that idolatry. In the religious systems of Byzantium and Rome, while pretending to Christianity, they had maintained the devils of the ancient world and appointed them to what they call saints, thereby imagining themselves to be able to transform devils into angels of light. And we're still being punished for that idolatry. Back to Paul of Tarsus. Verse 23. All is possible, but all does not profit. All is possible, but all does not build. Some manuscripts add the words to me or for me twice in that verse. So it is in the King James. As we had discussed presenting 1 Corinthians chapter 6, particularly verse 12, the Greek word, existin, probably the word which, which we get our English word exist from, the Greek word existin is possible here. According to the Dallin Scott, it means it is allowed, it is in one's power, it is lawful, but it shouldn't be confused with lawful according to the law of God. Existing to be possible is to have license to do something, but not by the law of God. 
the King James Version has lawful here, and that's confusing. Paul is stating it all is possible for him because, with the grace of God, all Israel is cleansed of their sins. We have already cited the first epistle of John where he said, Write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Therefore, if an Israelite commits sin, he has a propitiation in Christ. But sin is not profitable because it diminishes our relationship with God, as Christ explains in John chapter 14. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If we love our God, we demonstrate our love by keeping his word, and he shall don't love our God. We're still here. We but he won't be with us. We, in a state of apostasy, can expect, can anticipate correction, chastisement. Verse 24, no one must seek for that of himself, but for that of the other. The majority text adds the word each one to the final clause, so the King James wrote every man. However, the King James Version also adds the word wealth at the end of the clause. That is dishonest. It's not found in the Greek. Paul is not discussing material here, but rather he is making a reference to Christian deportment, where in verse 23 he says that for him all is possible, but all does not profit, all does not edify. The Christian should always behave in a manner which benefits and edifies his Christian brethren. And of course, do so in a way which also pleases Christ, not provoking God to jealousy. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, Christians should have brotherly love, affection towards one another, in honor, preferring one another with diligence, not hesitating. In other words, we put our brethren ahead of ourselves. So each one must seek for the things of the other. We must seek to please each other, not seek for that of ourselves. Eat all that is being sold in a market, by no means making an inquiry on account of conscience. Conscience, I'm sorry. For the earth is Yahweh's, and the fullness of it. Paul quotes from Psalm 24.1, The earth is Yahweh's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. The Greek word, makalon, Strong's 31.11, 
only appears here in the New Testament, and it is a market in the Christianian New Testament. But more specifically, it refers to a meat market, or in archaic English, as the King James Version has it, a shambles. Shambles, we use that word in a different way today. It kind of looks like Granby, Missouri. A shambles is an archaic word for a meat market. Here Paul is telling Christians to obtain the meat they need for food and not to worry about how it was slaughtered, whether it was sacrificed to an idol or not. Just go get the meat that you need for food and don't ask. Now, if one of the unbelieving invites you, some manuscripts add, to a dinner, and you wish to go, eat all that is being set before you, by no means making an inquiry on account of conscience. We must not lose sight of the fact that Paul is answering the Corinthians concerning those things which you have written, as he had told them at the beginning of chapter 7 of this epistle, where he discussed things such as marriage and fornication. And then he went on to address idolatry and the eating of food sacrificed to idols in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he addressed things pertaining to himself. In chapter 10, he discussed the idolatry of the ancient ancestors of these same Corinthians, the Israelites themselves, and of the other surrounding nations which were also descended from the Israelites. Now, he comes around in a circle. He returns to the topic of food in relation to the idolatry of the pagan world which he has described. It is important to note that when talking about the eating of things sacrificed to idols, that Paul is indeed talking about food, and that food is something which is customarily eaten. It may have been the custom of the Romans to eat things such as shellfish or swine, but it was not Paul's custom to eat such things. Therefore, one cannot insist that Paul was approving of things which he did not consider to be food in the first place. He's talking about food from his perspective. That does not include swine or shellfish because he's talking about food, and food is something which is customarily eaten. In chapter 8 of this epistle, Paul wrote speaking of the inefficacy of idols, that Christians should esteem them as nothing. And then he said in verse 7, yet not at all is that knowledge, but some in the custom of the idol until this time are nevertheless eating of that offered to an idol and their conscience, because they didn't have that knowledge that the idol is nothing, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food, 
does not bring us to terms with Yahweh. Neither do we have an advantage if we would eat, nor do we come short if we would not eat. But beware, lest in any way, by your license, this would become an obstacle to those who are weak. If our brother esteems the eating of temple offerings as a contribution to idolatry, then we should abstain from eating so that we do not become an obstacle to our brother. Paul goes on to say here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but if anyone may say to you, this is a temple offering. Now, some manuscripts have, this is an offering to an idol. Same thing. Do not eat on account of that person making the disclosure and the conscience. Now, the, the majority text and some later manuscripts add here the text which we found in verse 26, for the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness of it, it does not belong here. It is not in any of the ancient manuscripts here. As we have mentioned in conjunction with Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul discussed these same things, in the pagan world, it was difficult for city dwellers and for those without their own estates to obtain meat that had not been sacrificed to idols because even the meat markets were associated with pagan temples and they sold the meat which had been sacrificed to idols in those temples. Here Paul indicates that Christians may indeed attend social functions hosted by the unbelieving, verse 27, which to a Corinthian, of course, would infer an unbelieving Greek. Of course, a Christian should expect a pagan to serve all sorts of things that the Christian would not eat otherwise. So that is a risk every time such an invitation is accepted. Christians should not eat things which are not considered food. It won't kill you to eat something like that, but we shouldn't eat them if we love the law of God and if we love the temple and seek to care for it, which he has given us. But that issue is not within the scope of Paul's statements here since Paul is talking about food. Paul explains why a Christian may attend the tables of the unbelievers in verse 33 below, where he says, just as I also please all in all things, not seeking for the advantage of myself, but that of the many in order that they may be preserved. Christians should engage with their unbelieving neighbors, those who are indeed potential Christians, setting an example that we would win some of them over to the cause. In connection with idolatry earlier in this chapter, Paul quoted the scripture which said, 
The people were seated to eat and to drink, then rose up to play, and discussed fornication and temptation connected to idolatry. Of course, the Christian should desist from all of those things. Sitting at the table of the unbeliever, the Christian should seek to convert the unbeliever and not himself be converted to idolatry. If the food being served is a temple offering and the idol is acknowledged, the Christian should abstain from the food on that account in order to show that the idol cannot be respected rather than to fulfill the satisfaction of the idolaters by eating the meat and assenting to the idolatry. As Paul has said, you cannot drink the cup of the prince and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the prince and of the table of demons. It is difficult for Christians to walk this thin line in a pagan world. But if the Christian seeks to please God first, and then to please his brethren before himself, that walk is much, is much less difficult. So Paul said, do not eat on account of that person making the disclosure that the meat was sacrificed to an idol, and the conscience. And then Paul proceeds to explain in verse 29, but I mean not that conscience of yourself, but that of the other. For what reason is my freedom decided by another's conscience? On the surface, this seems to be a paradox. But if one's priorities are in order, it is certainly not a paradox. Our own freedom, our liberty which we have in Christ, is not decided by the consciences of other men. But we do not wish our brethren harm, so we do not throw a trap before them. If they are going to be offended, then we do not eat. If they are going to be satisfied with their idolatry, then we do not eat. Paul said in Romans chapter 14, But if, because of food, your brother is distressed, no longer do you walk in accordance with charity. You must not, with your food, ruin that person for whose benefit Christ had died. Therefore, do not make him speak ill of your good. Indeed, the kingdom of Yahweh is not eating and drinking, but justice and peace and delight in the Holy Spirit. He who in this is serving the anointed is acceptable to Yahweh and esteemed by men. So then, we should pursue those things of peace and those things for the building of one another. You must not destroy the work of Yahweh on account of food. Certainly, all things are clean, but are evil to the man who must eat in offense. It is good 
not to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything in which your brother takes offense at, or is trapped by, or is sickened. Christians have freedom to eat, and Christians have freedom to please their brethren. The nature of the food is not changed when it is sacrificed to an idol. And therefore, if the idol is not esteemed by the Christian, eating the food cannot cause any damage. But if one's brother is going to be offended, then one's license becomes licentiousness. So one does better to abstain from such license. Verse 30. And if I partake in thankfulness, why am I slandered for that which I am thankful? Whether you eat or you drink or do or anything you do, do all to the honor of Yahweh. Paul spoke similarly in chapter 8 of this epistle where he said, Now in that manner, failing in regard for the brethren and striking their weak consciences towards Christ you fail, on which account, if meat offends my brother, I would not eat flesh for eternity in order that my brother will not be offended abstaining from that which is sacrificed to idols, one would not give occasion for one's brother to speak evil, for one's brother to slander. One's brother may slander because he really does not know why one had chosen to eat such meat. Yet at the same time here, Paul is apparently persuading Christians not to so quickly judge brethren who they see eating in such a manner. Verse 32. Be found inoffensive to both Judeans and Greeks and to the assembly of Yahweh. Now, these Judeans and these Greeks are not yet Christians. Because when they convert to Christ, they lose, as Paul explained at length in Romans, they lose their identity as Judeans and Greeks and become one in Christ. So Paul's not talking about Christians here. Of course, Paul must be talking about Israelite Judeans, since it is impossible for Christians not to be offensive to the enemies of God. Paul is not talking about Jews. The enemies of God were often offended by Paul, although he gave them no such reason to be offended. Paul became, as a Judean to the Judeans, referring to, his kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are Israelites, as he calls them in Romans chapter 9. But Paul did not become as a devil to the devils. That's not what he means anywhere. Being found inoffensive to their Greek brethren, 
these Corinthian Christians would have an opportunity to persuade those Greeks to the better way in Christ. Being found inoffensive to Judeans or to those who knew the law and who would expect Christians to keep it, they would lay aside their license for the sake of the brethren and demonstrate their love for God. As Paul told the Romans in chapter 3 of his epistle, Do we then nullify the law by faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. When Christian disagreement is resolved by consenting to the law, then Christians please both God and man. If men are offended by the law, then those men are found to be in opposition to God. Verse 33. Just as I also please all in all things, not seeking for the advantage of myself, but that of the many, in order that they may be preserved. Of course, Paul's challenges were different than those of Christians bearing the gospel today. Paul was endeavoring to pull his Greek-Israelite brethren out of the pagan world and the immoral and destructive practices which accompanied paganism. Today, that's called Judeo-Christianity, right? In the meantime, he also sought to pull his Judean Israelite brethren away from the rejection of Christ and the punishment which was about to come upon the Edomite Jews for their crucifixion of Christ. His words at Romans 16.20 are fully demonstrative of that understanding. When Paul talks about preservation, he means the preservation in this life which is promised to those who are obedient to Christ and not in the life to come, where all Israel has a promise of ultimate salvation. However, giving up this life for Christ, one seeks an even greater reward. Paul's desire to please all in all things did not mean that he would negotiate his Christian principles, but rather that he believed he could please all of his brethren, Greek or Judean, by adhering to sound Christian doctrine. And what is found is the first verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is actually the conclusion to what Paul had presented here in chapter 10, where he encourages his readers to become imitators of me just as also I am of Christ. Yahshua Christ was found dining with the Pharisees, and teaching the scriptures to the Pharisees. For instance, Luke wrote in his gospel in Luke 7.36, and one of the Pharisees desired him, meaning Christ, that he would eat with him. 
And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. However, Christ was also found dining with publicans and harlots and teaching the scriptures to sinners. Luke had written in that same chapter the words attributed to Christ just a couple of verses sooner at 734. The Son of Man is come, eating and drinking. And ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Paul sought to follow that example. And in bringing the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he likewise had to deal with both pagans and Judeans. He became to the pagans as being without law. In other words, he talked to the pagans on pagan terms. He became to the Judeans as a Judean so that he could talk about the fulfillments of Scripture and prophecy in Christ to them on their terms. But he did not become as a devil to devils. Paul did not become as a Jew. And Paul did not forsake his imitation of Christ. This leads me to want to discuss another topic, which is appropriate here, both because of the season and because of the things which we have just read in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians here in chapter 10. This is going to be the topic of conversation tomorrow night with pastors Downey and Elmore. I don't mean to precipitate or to encroach upon that conversation, I'm sure it'll be a good one. I did not plan to read this essay that I wrote five years ago tomorrow night, so I'm going to read it tonight. I will express some of the ideas in this essay tomorrow night, but I won't read the essay. This is the perennial struggle. This short essay was written December 25th, 2009, by my recollection. I could be wrong. Every year around this time, there's the same list of questions circulating among identity Christians. And many of us have the same inward struggle. What should we do about Christmas? For many of us, it is not a struggle at all. Rather, we simply alienate our families and friends by shunning their pagan holiday. And there's no doubt Christmas is a pagan holiday. And the way it's celebrated is revolting. It is anti-Christian. There is no doubt. It is basically a Jewish merchant fiesta. No doubt. However, while it is good never to compromise the truths of our faith, as Paul just professed, we are also told to love our brethren above all but God himself. There are certainly places where we should never cross the line, and we should not violate the commandments of God, even in spite of our brethren. 
but it may be advantageous to see Christmas as an occasion to witness to the truth rather than as an opportunity to somehow prove that we ourselves are more holy than our kindred. Of course, the many people who adhere to the true Christian faith as it is found in Scripture, as those who associate ourselves with one form of Christian identity or another see it, have come to understand the errors of our ancestors. Therefore, it is natural for identity Christians to despise Christmas as a pagan holiday. They have every good reason to do so, because Christmas and many of the things associated with Christmas clearly have pagan origins. In reality today, those pagan decorations are really only a facade over a Jewish merchant bonanza which is even more revolting than the pagan trappings. But the Winter Festival has become a de facto part of our culture for thousands of years now, in spite of its complete absence from Scripture. And because of this, it is traditionally a principal gathering time for most white families. And in fact, often, it is the only time of the year in which many white families take an opportunity to gather it all. And if you are in a position that many in Christian identity find themselves, the rest of your family celebrates Christmas with all of the usual holiday fervor. It is fully evident from Scripture that Christ was not even born in December, but sometime during the end of what to us is September. That time of the year at which the Old Testament Feast of Trumpets occurred, and a couple of years before the year in which our popular chronology places his birth, a few hundred years after Christ, the Roman Church adopted the pagan, the ancient pagan Winter Solstice Festival, which the Romans called Saturnalia. They adopted that for their own purposes. There is no doubt that the Winter Festival is a pagan holiday celebrated among the Greeks as Bacchanalia and in Rome as Saturnalia. It was a time of drunken revelry and sexual promiscuity, no doubt. Examining the pagan origins of what we now call Christmas we find the so-called Christmas tree described in Jeremiah chapter 10, written nearly 600 years before the birth of Christ. From verse 3, this is another one of those scriptures where we see the practice today proves that the people who carried it forward were indeed the children of Israel turned to paganism. So it's our heritage, but it should be a shameful part of our heritage that we have done this thing for so long. From verse 3 of Jeremiah 10, for the customs of the people are vain. 
For one cuts a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it moves not. They are upright as the palm tree, but they speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. In other words, they need to be carried. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. This is but one of the pagan customs which our Scythian Israelite ancestors took out of Mesopotamia when they departed. And in spite of all this, at times I find myself wanting to defend Christmas. That's why it's a perennial struggle. Only because the Jews and all the other enemies of Christ are continually attacking it. And they do this in spite of the fact that the Jewish merchants and the bankers profit so handsomely from it. So this is the perennial struggle which I referred to at the opening of this discussion. But it need not be a struggle at all once we attain the proper perspective. John 4.21, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. And to the Greeks, who were pagans, Paul became as a Greek. To those outside of the law, Paul became as those outside of the law, because he wanted to please all men in everything, but in order to preserve some of them. In other words, Paul could be as a pagan amongst the pagans, in order to save some pagans, and as a Judean amongst the Judeans, in order to convert some of the Judeans to Christ. We in Christian identity should be well aware of the prophecies which Yahweh uttered of our people, that there are those who would slumber, and there are those whom he has called into awakening in his marvelous life, the truth of the gospel and the covenant. We who are called to understand his word do not need to vaunt ourselves over our brethren who have not been blessed with that same awakening. For God, and not man, decides which of us are awakened and which of us continue in that prophesied blindness. Yet, if one can use even a pagan holiday to do good, how can that be evil? As Paul says here in this chapter, if one, of the unbelieving invites you to a meal or a dinner and you wish to go. Don't inquire as to whether the meat on a table was sacrificed to an idol. Just eat it. Just go along with it. Now, if it's a slice of pig's ass, I would probably pass on it and eat two sweet potatoes instead. 
But if it's a hunk of beef or turkey, I'm game. If one can use even a pagan holiday to do good, how can that ever be evil? Was that not the example that our Redeemer set in the first place? While most identity Christians certainly would not eat the ham, and most of them may also, as they should, shun the silly tree and the made-in-China decorations, we certainly should not shun our brethren. We should reject the commercialism which the Jews profit from so handsomely. But, and this is where many identity Christians trip, we should reject that commercialism all the year long. We should reject that commercialism 365 days a year, not just one. We should celebrate and cherish the little time that we could get with our families all year long. And for many of us, this is the only time of the year that we actually get to spend with them. Therefore, we should not despise them, even if they know nothing about those things which we esteem to be true. Rather, this is also an excellent time to testify to that truth. In John chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, we find this. Then there was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Yahshua walked about the temple on a porch of Solomon. The Feast of Dedication was a feast instituted by the Maccabees. After the restoration of the temple, about 150 years before the birth of Christ, when the temple had been spoiled by the Greeks of Syria, the Seleucids, like Christmas, the Feast of Dedication is a holiday instituted by man and not by God. Today they call it Hanukkah. It's funny the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. They're celebrating the restoration of a temple that was restored 2,150 years ago, or 2,165 years ago, maybe. And it was absolutely wiped out and destroyed 1950 years ago. That's funny. The Jews are celebrating Hanukkah, the restoration of a temple that has not existed for almost 2,000 years. That's funny. The joke is on the Jew. Like Christmas, the Feast of Dedication is a holiday instituted by man and not by God. Christ was found in the temple during the Feast of Dedication, not necessarily because he was celebrating the feast, but because that is where his people were gathered. Yahshua was teaching in the temple at the Feast of Dedication. And although the religious authorities were opposed to him, 
John tells us at chapter 8, verse 30, that upon his saying these things, many believed in him. If Christ can go to the Feast of Dedication, we can go to the pagan holiday of Christmas. We can indeed go to our family gatherings on Christmas and every other chance that we get. And while we certainly should not go into debt, (laughs) ringing up the Jewish shekels on plastic cards for those unnecessary things which the Jews try to make us do and buy, we can and we should use the occasion to testify to our kin to the truth of the gospel. Whether they accept it or not. And if you go to your family Christmas gathering this year and use it as an occasion to testify to the truth of of the gospel and next year you don't get invited, that's fine. You did your job. You did what you were supposed to do. And I've been through that too. As Paul said, speaking of his trial in Rome, even though it was a different context in chapter 1 of Philippians, some indeed, even because of envy and strife, but some also by approval are proclaiming the Christ. Surely these out of love, knowing that I am set for defense of the gospel, but those out of contention are declaring the Christ not purely. Supposing to stir up tribulation in my bonds, what then, that in every way, whether in pretext or in truth, Christ is declared, and in this I rejoice, and surely I will rejoice. Whether in pretext or in truth, if Christ our Redeemer is declared, we too should rejoice. Therefore, we should not let the Jews take Christ out of Christmas. We should go to our family gatherings and insert Christ into Christmas. We should celebrate our Redeemer on that day and on every other day. However, the Christmas holiday is the day upon which we have the opportunity to be with our families and attest our love for them and for Christ, too. Then we must certainly take advantage of it. We, identity Christians, should transform the pagan winter holiday into a true celebration of Christ because that's the opportunity we have to be with our families. We'll be back here tomorrow night to discuss the unchristian Christmas, because Christmas certainly is not Christian, with pastors Don Elmore and Mark Downey of the Fellowship of God's Covenant People. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel, and good night.